hey, some family business to handle before we jump into our message today. Just kind of lock in on your calendar and, and like put your brain on for just a minute so you hear this. Um, we are on Sunday, August 27th, moving our service times from 8.30 and 10.30 to we are adding a third service starting Sunday, August 27th. We will begin to have Sunday morning services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. You say, why are we doing that? Here is the reality of what started happening in the spring. We had one Sunday this spring where during our 10.30 a.m. service, this service, we had three empty parking spots in our entire parking lot. And if you've been to Growth Track, you heard us say that we are a church who believes God has put us here for people in our community who don't know Jesus yet and who still need to find him. So on days like that, we have to ask ourselves this question. It is our spiritual question. Do we believe there are only three families left in Lee Summit who don't know Jesus yet? If so, we're good with three empty parking spots. If we think there's more than three, we're going ha- to have to create more room for people. So our reality in the spring was that we were out of room very specifically at this service. This is a summer crowd. It'll swell when school starts again. Um, our parking lot is running out of space. Our kids' ministry is getting tight. We know God has always called us to be a church that has seats when families walk in that need to sit together. I found myself in the spring, this side of the, of the auditorium always fills up slower than this side. I'd be preaching at 1030, and I'd see families of four or six walk in together late after the worship, and they would not be able to sit together because there were not pockets of four or six seats anywhere. So we knew in April and May that when we got back to school time, if, um, if you guys kept coming in the summer like you came in the spring, that we were going to have to start new services. So 8, 9, 30, uh, and 11, I know that you're going to kind of adjust half and half. Some of you are going to say 11 o'clock is too late. Um, some of you are going to say 9.30 is too early. So just pick the one that works best for you. But know on Sunday, August 27th, um, if you show up at 10.30, here's what you need to know. You're 30 minutes early for the 11. You're not an hour late for the 9.30. So like, I'm just putting it on you. If you miss the service time and show up at 10.30, don't think, oh, it's over and go home. No, you're just 30 minutes early. Meet a new friend, grab a cup of coffee, um, and we'll see you at 11 a.m. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 26 today. We're in week two of a series called It is finished. We are finishing not just the book of Matthew at our church that we've been in for three years, but we're finishing the life of Jesus. We're in the final five days of the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Last week we started on Wednesday of Passion Week, which is the week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. We started on Wednesday and we had this flashback that Matthew pulled us back to to help us understand the heart of followers of Jesus around the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you weren't here last, uh, last week, I'll give you a quick refresher. If you were, it'll just help you. Last week we learned from Jesus as a woman named Mary anointed him for his burial the week before he would die with very expensive perfume. We learned that sitting with Jesus is far more important than serving Jesus. Sometimes we're all hands, no heart. We learn that sitting with Jesus is more important than serving Jesus, but we learn that when you sit with Jesus, you will always serve Jesus because Jesus into you always comes out of you. So if you sit with Jesus, you'll serve Jesus. If you serve Jesus without sitting with him, you're going to burn out and you're going to get bitter. We also learned last week that you have to get alone with Jesus, and getting alone with Jesus is far more important than giving to the mission of Jesus. But if you live a life constantly getting alone with Jesus, the overflow of that is going to be seeing what God has put in your hands as his, and you're going to give back to the mission of God. But if we said if you give to the mission without getting alone with Jesus, eventually you're going to find a reason, a circumstance to stop giving. You're going to burn out in giving. You're going to get bitter in giving. So uh, getting alone with Jesus is better than giving to Jesus. But when you get alone, you always end up giving. And in the midst of this kind of 
picture of Mary sitting and worshiping and giving to Jesus, we heard the disciples look at her and say, this is a waste of time and money. We said last week, it is never a waste of a minute to serve Jesus. It is never a waste of a dollar to give to the mission of Jesus. But in that moment, we saw the disciples say, this is a waste of time and money. Now, John, one of Jesus' closest friends, would say it wasn't all the disciples who said this. It was one, and his name was Judas. Today, as we jump back into the story of Jesus in the final week of his life, we're going to look at the life of we're going to look at the spiritual character of a man named Judas Iscariot, and we're going to kind of wrap our entire message around him and who he is and what we can learn from him today. Let me give you some just a, a quick profile. Um, like if, if you were looking at him on LinkedIn real quick, let me give you a biblical profile of Judas Iscariot and who he is. He was a follower of Jesus who was chosen to be one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. I say this so that you might know that he did not sneak into the close circle of Jesus. Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands of followers. He took 12 of those and said, I want you to be in my inner circle. Jesus chose Judas and he invited him in. He was probably from the small town of Kiriath Hezron in the tribe of Judah. You say, why do you know that? In Joshua chapter 15, verse 25, we learn that one of the towns that Joshua gave to the tribe of Judah was Kiriath Hezron. We know that Judas's name is a derivative of the name of Judah, and the word Iscariot, Ishkariot, means Judah from the town of Kiriot. Ish means a man from the town of Judas, who's from the town of Kiriot. So we know that he would have been the only one of Jesus' 12 apostles from the tribe of David. Interesting fact. He would have been the only one of Jesus' 12 apostles not from Galilee. So he would have felt like a little bit of an outsider. He would have been a little bit of an outsider. And he's always listed as the last of the 12 apostles in Scripture. And he's always listed as a traitor to Jesus. And we met him last week because as Mary is anointing Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfume worth a year's wages, she breaks the bottle. Judas steps into the story and says, why would she waste time and money like this worshiping Jesus? And Jesus says, you don't understand. Um, following me is not just always about doing for me or giving towards me. A lot of times it's sitting with me and what she's done will be told everywhere. This wasn't good enough for Judas. Judas is like, you know what? I don't think I'm in anymore. And when we pick up the story, we're going to start in the flashback, Saturday before Palm Sunday, then we're going to jump into Thursday of this final week of Jesus' life. Let's start in verse 14. Mary's anointed his feet. They've said, she's wasting money. Jesus is like, no, you've missed it. It says in verse 14, then one of the 12, the one called Judas, the man from Cariot. That's what that means. Iscariot's not his last name. Judas from the town of Cariot went to the chief priest, and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out from 30 pieces of silver. From then on, you might circle those two words. That's, so that's Saturday before Palm Sunday. So Saturday before Palm Sunday, that whole week, Judas is trying to figure out how do I hand him over. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Verse 17, now we're back real time, Passion Week, Thursday. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. They were very sad, and they began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hands into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. 
it would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. For the forgiveness of sins, I tell you, I will not drink this fruit from the vine until now, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, let me be honest with you. I've been teaching and preaching the Bible for 25 years. I have never given an entire message on the life of Judas Iscariot. Um, Not one time. It was an interesting study for me. It was a deeply impacting study for me. Many of you have been Christians far longer than I've been preaching and teaching the Bible. And it's possible you have never taken an entire Sunday morning to study the life of Judas Iscariot. But as we do this today, we're going to realize, one, how important it is to our faith walk, and two, how important this guy is in the Bible. I mean, if the most important event in the history of the world is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, this guy is not one of the cast members hanging out in the back. Like, he's in the first line of credits. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And as we look at his life and study his life today, I think we're going to have some gratitude over what God is going to show us from his life because we're going to see two things. We're going to see his impact on our salvation and we're going to see his impact on our discipleship. One is going to be a little theological. One is going to be a little practical. So let's dig in number one to Judas's impact on my salvation. As we study his life, we're going to see how God used him so that we could be brought into relationship with Jesus. Here's the first thing you need to understand. The betrayal of the Messiah was not a surprise. It was sovereign, which means God planned it. God knew that it was going to happen. This is the fourth time in the book of Matthew Jesus has announced that he's going to die. This is the first time he has announced that it's going to happen because one of his inner circle is going to betray him, and this shocks his disciples which tells you that they were not American disciples. Because American disciples, like if Jesus had stepped into a room of American disciples, if Jesus had come to your small group and said, listen, one of you is going to betray me, we would already know who it was. We'd be like, yep, yep, it's Tammy. We've all known for the last year. We've been watching her faith life. She's a fake. Or we'd be like, it's Bruce. Because when Bruce leaves small group, we we would have already had targeted. Like, yep, we know the one who's not a real believer. Not the disciples. The disciples were clueless as to who it was going to be. The book of John says they didn't even know it was Judas. Nobody thought, it's Judas, isn't it? As a matter of fact, Peter like signaled John across the dinner table and said, ask him who it is. And Jesus would then tell John, it's Judas. But they were clueless. It was a surprise to everyone but Jesus. But it was not a surprise to Jesus because it was God's sovereign plan. Look at Matthew 26, verses 20 through 24 one more time. Tell me if Jesus looks surprised. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. I find it interesting in verse 25, Judas is like, surely you're not talking about me. Judas had known that he was going to turn over Jesus. I don't know that he knew it was going to lead to Jesus' death. And I don't know that he had ever heard Jesus look directly at him and say, it would have been better had you not been born. It wasn't a surprise. It was God's sovereign plan. 
And in the life and ministry of Jesus, the betrayal of the Messiah was a, wasn't a situation to be avoided. It was just a sign to be aware of. Jesus not only wasn't trying to avoid it, he invited the plan of God into his life. He would say, this has already all been written about. Somebody say written about. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you knew the Bible, you'd know this. I'm not avoiding this. I'm making you aware of something you should have already known. So in John chapter 6, we read one of the most powerful chapters in Scripture. Jesus feeds 5,000 people from a few fish and loaves, and then he walks on water after praying all night. And then he ends up in the town of Capernaum in the synagogue there, and he preaches this message. The people catch up to him, and they're like, hey, great lunch yesterday. Can you do that again? And Jesus is like, no, I didn't come to feed you physically. I came to feed you spiritually. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he wasn't talking physically, but he was saying, unless I am the thing that connects you spiritually to God, you'll never be connected to God. Like, you just want what I can give you, but you don't want me, and that's not going to be good enough. And people, like, started to, to leave because they thought Jesus was kind of out of his mind and he was asking too much. At one point during this time in John chapter 6, verse 63 through 64, Jesus is explaining, I'm giving spiritual metaphors. I don't want you to take a bite of me. I just need you to know you need to trust me. He says, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are full of the spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who did not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Not a surprise to Jesus sovereign, not even something he was trying to avoid. He knew the whole time. It's interesting, at this point it says the group of 20,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children who had eaten all said, mm, we don't want to follow you anymore. They all left except the 12 and Jesus challenged the 12, do you want to leave too? Are you here for who I am or what I can offer you? And Peter said, we believe you're the one who has the words of life, where else would we go? And Jesus responds in verses 70 through 71, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. It wasn't a surprise. It was sovereign. Jesus wasn't trying to avoid it. He just wanted the disciples. He wants his followers to be aware of it. He said it was written about. Somebody say written about again. Written about. You say, where was it written about? Good question. In John chapter 13, Peter gets John's attention. Psst, psst, hey, ask him who it is. John leans back, and he's like, who is it? And Jesus quotes what has been written about it. He quotes Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, someone who I trusted, the one who I share my bread with will turn against me. Jesus isn't just giving a word picture. He's quoting scripture. Scripture says that someone would turn against the Messiah. Psalm 55, 12 through 14, it's written, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. So Psalm 55 is a, is a psalm about somebody turning against God's Messiah. Jesus said it's been written about. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13, somebody goes before the rulers of Israel and wants to get rid of the shepherd. And it says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is like, this is not a surprise. It's sovereign. God's doing it. And I've not been trying to avoid it. I just need you to be aware of it. And here's what's very interesting from a timeline perspective. While Jesus was initiating the new covenant with the Lord's Supper, Judas was finalizing the old covenant with 30 pieces of silver, literally at the exact same time. In John chapter 18, Jesus tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. He leaves the room. The disciples are so clueless that Judas is the betrayer, they think Jesus has sent him to buy more groceries. They don't even understand what he's doing. 
at that time after Judas leaves, Judas goes to tell the chief priest, I know where he's going to be, while he is literally sacrificing the Lamb of God to the leaders of Israel. Jesus is initiating a new covenant with his disciples. It's why we say when we take communion that you should check your heart before you take communion, before you take the body and the blood of Jesus, because Jesus asked Judas to leave the table before he served it. If your heart is in a spot of betrayal, just using the Son of God rather than loving the Son of God, maybe you shouldn't take this right now. Jesus dismisses Judas from the table, and while Judas is selling him to the leaders of Israel, Jesus initiates to his disciples the new covenant. This will be the last Passover a lamb ever has to be slaughtered because my blood, my body will be broken for you, and the Holy Spirit will change your heart forever. So this seems to be a bad thing, yet in hindsight, in the eyes of the disciples, about 50 days later, seven weeks later, the disciples would actually say the betrayal of the Messiah was clearly the plan of God to the people of God after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter would stand up after this night of confusion and he would say, what happened, God made happen because it was the only way that we could end up in relationship with the God of heaven. In Acts chapter 1, Peter stands up among the believers, a group that numbered about 120, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. Jesus said, this is not a surprise, it's sovereign. I'm not avoiding it, I just want to make you aware of it. It is the plan and the purpose of God. And when Peter understood all that, he said, let's tell the world about the plan and purpose of God through the betrayal of Jesus, what happened with Judas. Now, for those of us who are empathetic towards Judas, we should ask the question, if we wrestle theologically at all, if it was God's plan, then why was Judas guilty? Like, if God, if God had to have somebody betray Jesus, like, if that was the plan, why would the, he then hold him accountable? Like, why would Jesus say, God's doing this, yet it would have been better for you not to have been born? Like, was it foreordained Judas had no choice, or was it Judas's free will? Like, I'm, I'm confused by why God would judge Judas if he needed him to do this. It's good confusion. Um, that's deep confusion. That's theological wrestling that I don't think... I don't think I can pin either one of those arguments. But I can give you a quote from one of my favorite preachers from about 100 years ago by a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon who talked about the tension and the wrestling between these doctrines of foreordination, sovereignty, and free will. Listen to what Spurgeon says. If I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths could ever contradict each other. I don't believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil, but they certainly shall be one in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them far farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. What is Spurgeon saying? If I read in the Bible that God is sovereign, he puts plans together. That's true. If I read in the Bible that people are accountable for their actions, that's true. And on earth, they look like the exact same thing. And I am not smart enough to figure it out. That's what Spurgeon is saying. I can't figure out how this works. But I have to trust what appears to be free will within the sovereignty of God. At some point, that'll get worked out before the throne of God. And I don't have to figure it out. I just have to trust God. 
So we see Judas being brought into this plan of God, but of his own free will, choosing to betray Jesus. It's like Moses with hard-hearted Pharaoh, who hardened his heart and had God harden his heart, and then hardened his heart, and then God had hardened his heart. These, it, it looked like both things were happening at the same time, and at some point, God will figure it out. It's like Joseph's brothers, who sold him because they had hard hearts, but at the foreordination of God, who had a soft heart to save his entire family. So Joseph could say at the end of his life in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Pharaoh did not want to rescue the people of Israel. He wanted to destroy them. So God used him to rescue them. Joseph's brothers didn't want to save Joseph and make him second in the kingdom of Israel. They wanted to destroy him, but God used that to raise Joseph up. And Judas did not want to save Jesus. He wanted to destroy him, but God used that to unite the world with him. It's important to understand Judas's impact on our salvation and the part that God played and he played in that. But I think probably the more practical uh, the more impactful part of Judas's life is Judas's impact on my discipleship. Because here's what I learned. As I looked at the heart of Judas as revealed in Scripture, I saw a lot of myself on my bad days. As I looked at Judas's heart revealed in Scripture, I saw a lot of Judas's heart in me in my bad seasons. As I looked at Judas's heart as revealed in Scripture, I saw a lot of things that my heart wants to tell me are true when things are difficult and hard. And as I look at the life of Judas, there's some warning signs for followers of Jesus not to develop or to be tricked or trapped by the heart of Judas. Now, these seven warning signs, I believe all of you have felt them and maybe are currently feeling them today. My hope today is just to put a name on them so that when you feel them today, tomorrow, next week, next year, you'll think that's a warning sign from the life of Judas Iscariot, the man from Kiryat Hezron. What are they? I'm just going to kind of roll through them one at a time. They won't like connect in a whole lot of ways. Seven real distinct warning signs from the life of Judas. Warning number one, my motivation for following the Messiah must be more about his kingdom than my kingdom. It's possible to follow Jesus for what he can do for you more than who he is. And when he does not do for you what you want him to do for you to say, I'm out. Judas was from the tribe of Judah. And probably more so than even the other disciples was ready to rule and reign with Jesus. Because that's what the tribe of Judah did. That was David's tribe. None of these guys were from David's tribe, by the way, except Jesus. The only one Jesus could have been maybe loosely related to would have been Judas. Because they were from the same ancient tribe. Judas is thinking, when this guy becomes king, our tribe is going to become the ruler of this country. And I have, an, I have a seat at the table with the guy who's going to be running the country. We can understand his mindset from his past. Yet at some point he thought, Jesus is not going to do for me what I anticipated him doing for me, so I'm out. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus is going to fill, fulfill every promise and prophecy of Scripture perfectly. Let me say it again. Jesus is going to fulfill every promise and prophecy of Scripture perfectly. But that does not mean he will fulfill every expectation and ambition that you expect him to have for you. Let me say it again. Jesus will fulfill everything that the Bible says he will do. That does not mean everything in addition to that that you expect him to do or want him to do for you, he will do. Somebody say the words Jesus and. One more time, Jesus and. I have found most Christians lean in spiritually for Jesus and something else. 
And whatever is in that blank is the place that you can grow spiritually. Because most of us are good spiritually if Jesus and something are good spiritually. And a lot of us question whether he's worthy if Jesus and this thing aren't going how we want it to go spiritually. For Judas, it was Jesus and we finally conquer the Romans. We rule and reign together. I've got a seat at the table. And when the and didn't happen, that Jesus wasn't worth it. Can I say some things that I wish weren't true, but they might be true for you? Some of you are going to lose your job and your financial security and your means to providing for yourself like you provide for yourself now. And even though you'll be okay, you're not going to be okay spiritually because it is Jesus and your job and the way you live your life right now and the lifestyle that really gives you spiritual peace and contentment. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus and and if you remove one, Jesus is not really super valuable to you. Some of you, your Jesus and is Jesus and you don't even know it yet, but it's going to be revealed that you worship Jesus and physical health because when the diagnosis comes back bad, your faith is going to completely fall apart. Which has nothing to do with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you, but your faith was always based in Jesus and being healthy physically. And when being healthy physically was taken away, you realized your faith was Jesus and something else. Most of you will lose a relationship with somebody close to you because you follow Jesus. And you won't even realize you were following Jesus for that reason until you lose it and you'll realize my faith was built on Jesus and this thing going well. And when this thing stopped going well, Jesus didn't have much value to me. Now, Jesus and what he offers and who he is and what he does hasn't changed, but the other side of the and changed, and all of a sudden you changed how you feel about Jesus. I want to say something that's harsh, it's not sensitive, it's not empathetic, I apologize, but it's true. Somebody close to you is going to die. And if they're on the other side of your and, and your faith is based on Jesus and this person, your faith is going to fall apart even though nothing about Jesus changed. And I'll say this, it's a hard but very, very practical fact. If you live a really long time, everybody you know is going to die. And if your faith is Jesus and, if God's goodness is Jesus and, if Jesus being worthy is Jesus and, you're not going to have much faith. Even though nothing about who Jesus is or what Jesus promised has changed, the other side of the and was where your anchor is. You're going to have somebody in your life who's really important to you who's going to say no to Jesus, and they're not even going to do it in a nice way. And if your whole prayer life, and if your whole faith life, and if your whole faith walk is based on Jesus and this person close to you finally coming to Jesus, like your faith is, even though nothing about Jesus or who he is or what he promised has changed, this anchor is going to take the whole thing down. We have to be careful, like Judas that we follow Jesus for who Jesus is, not for Jesus and. Amen? Amen? It's not easy, but it's true. And often we don't even know it's Jesus and until the second blank falls, and then it pulls the whole thing down with it. And we thought, man, I, I might have had a little bit of the mindset of Judas there. Judas got to the point where he said, if all Jesus can offer me is the crucifixion and resurrection, if all he can offer me is forgiveness and connection to God, I'll pass. What do you mean? No financial security? I'll pass. Uh, no French? I'll pass. No blessing and prosperity on my family? Like, 
Wait, you're telling me all you can offer me is crucifixion, resurrection, forgiveness, and connection to God? Yeah, I'll pass. That would be the heart of Judas. That's a warning for those of us who follow for Jesus and. Warning number two. Close proximity to the presence of Jesus doesn't guarantee personal transformation by the spirit of Jesus. Close proximity to the presence of Jesus. Judas lived with him every day for more than a thousand days. Doesn't guarantee personal transformation by the spirit of Jesus. You could say with clarity that Judas had committed these three years of his life to Jesus, but he had never committed his heart to Jesus. And when he, what he was expecting in life went away, his heart quickly went also. Now, I believe the church has a problem in this warning number two area because the church that I have grown up in and the church that I now lead, not journey, but the church age that I now lead in, has so far repelled against what I would call like the legalism of the moral majority 70s and 80s that Christians cannot do these hundred things that we have stopped telling people that following Jesus leads to moral transformation in your life at all. And we've kind of said, you can change Jesus and act like everyone else in the world, it doesn't matter. What we've done, instead of telling people that you don't work for your salvation and you're not more spiritual because you don't do these 20 things, we've told people, you can be a follower of Jesus and talk like you did before you were a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter. That's not biblically true. You can be a follower of Jesus and spend your money like you did before you were a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter. That's not biblically true. You can be a follower of Jesus and kind of drink and smoke just like you did before you were a follower of Jesus. That's not true. You can be a follower of Jesus and watch what you've always watched and listen to what you've always listened to. Nothing really has to change. That's not true. There's no biblical Christianity without personal transformation presented to us in this book. And as a church, when we stand up and say, because grace is so big, you can be a Christian, and your heart and life don't have to change at all, we are not preaching a biblical gospel, amen? Like, we need to start telling people again, Christians should be different. Christians should act like Jesus. Your friends that you golf with, your friends in your book club, your friends that you fish with, your friends that you run with, as you get closer to Jesus, they should be saying things like, you're changing, you're different, you don't do this anymore, you do this all the time. Like, when you have close proximity to Jesus and your heart never changes, I question whether you have Jesus in your heart. Judas had close proximity to Jesus. He's with him every day for a thousand days, but his heart never changed. I think the church has to do a better job of saying you don't earn your salvation, but salvation changes you. And the fact that you're changing is one of the evidences that you have it. Warning number three, it's possible to let Jesus serve our needs without a desire to serve his mission. It's possible to let Jesus serve our needs without a desire to serve his mission. Easy answer to a question, big time point in the message. Judas sold Jesus for what? 30 pieces of silver. Exodus 21, 32 said the price of a slave was what? 30 pieces of silver. Judas was saying, I treat Jesus like my slave, and when he quits performing the way I want him to perform, you can have him. There are too many Christians who treat Jesus like the servant, and they themselves retain the title of the master. Judas proved, I've always seen this guy as just somebody who does what I need him to do. And when he stops doing that, you can have him. Price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. My son Christian, sitting over here, turns 22 tomorrow. He'll head back for his senior year of college soon. He, um, 
he got his first tattoo in Jerusalem uh, on our next-gen trip there. For those of you like, well, what are your beliefs on tattoos? I'll give you two pictures. One, look at me. Um, two, look at Jay Armstrong. I'm good with both of them. Like, those, like that's, that's my span of belief. Jay's our worship leader. Oh, that guy. Um, like, like, that's my span of belief. Um, Christian's tattoo is a Greek word, the word doulos, which is, if you understand Greek a little bit or you read the New Testament, it's a word bondservant, and he's got a crown of thorns over it. And when I ask him, what does it mean? When people ask you, what's that mean? What, what are you going to tell them? And he said, that tattoo means that I'm a servant of Christ. That's what I am. Like, I want to I remind myself and I want everyone to know I'm a servant of Christ. Now, I don't think Jesus has tattoos. But he does have marks on his body that show that he served you. But not that he's your slave. And I think there's a lot of Christians who expect Jesus when they get to heaven to have their tattoo, their name tattooed on his body, and you think he exists to serve every desire and whim of your life. In Christianity, he is the master. We are the servant. And if you're trying to figure out, do I treat him like master or servant, go back and look at your prayer journal. Because what you ask him to do and how you ask him to do it and how you feel about it when he doesn't will tell you whether you see him as your slave or your master. Judas said, I, I guess I've seen him as a slave and when my slave won't do for me what I need him to do, you can have him. 30 pieces of silver. Warning number four. I won't stay long on this one, but we have to talk about it because of Judas. The love of money and the security it promises are dangerous spiritually. The love of money and the security that it promises are dangerous spiritually. This was for Judas the straw that broke the camel's back. Whoa, 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 what are we doing? Like we could have sold this perfume. This could have funded our ministry for a year. This could have taken care of us. Jesus is like, that's not really important. Judas said, I'm out. And John said he said, I'm out because he used to help himself to the money and the money was drying up. He was with Jesus for financial security. And when the money dried up, he was out. January of 2024 at our church, uh, we have a sermon series called Consecrate. The word consecrate means to set something apart or to give something as an offering to someone. Um, it'll be the theme of our month of January, and we'll do 21 days of prayer. For those of you who are listening closely, yes, 21 days, not seven. It'll be different than we've done it in the past, but 21 days of prayer in January. And we'll be asking you to consecrate some things. As I have watched and lived in community with and talked to people about why they don't consecrate Sunday morning is holy to the Lord anymore. Why they come to church on Sunday mornings when there's nothing else going on, but they haven't set that aside for Jesus. When I talk to people about why they haven't consecrated a time of spiritual community, 90 minutes, two hours every week, where you go to be in a small group or a Bible study, why haven't you set that apart and not allowed other things to mess with that? When I talk to people why they've not consecrated the first 10% of their income as an offering, what we call the tithe in a church, when I talk to people why, why they've not consecrated daily Bible reading time and daily prayer time, when I talk to people about why they've not consecrated a time to serve the church and serve the community and go on mission trips, I never hear Christians say, because it's not important, because I don't like it, because it's stupid. Here's what I always hear them say. I just don't have time. I've just not made time. And usually it's because they're too busy with other things in life, usually work. But here's what I hear. I don't hear that they love their job. I don't hear that they love money. I hear that they're afraid of how they'll be taken care of if they don't let financial security make their priority decisions and scheduling. It's not that they love their job or love money. 
They're just afraid to trust God with their financial security. Judas teaches us the love of money and thinking money will take care of you more than God will take care of you can be very, very dangerous to your faith walk. Warning number five. Let's finish quick. We'll sprint to the finish line. Feeling bad about doing bad is not the same thing as repenting of sin. Judas' life and eventually in the next few weeks his death are going to teach us that feeling bad about doing bad is not the same thing of repenting of sin. So two disciples, not one, two disciples on the last night of Jesus' life would terribly let him down. One was Judas who sold, him for, sold out his location for 30 pieces of silver. One was the apostle Peter who three times denied that he even knew Jesus, much less loved him and followed him. One of these guys, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, would have worldly remorse. He'd feel bad about it. His name was Judas. And it says because he felt bad about what he did, he took the money back and said, I changed my mind, this isn't right. And the guys are like, keep the money, we can't take it back now. He throws the money into the church. He goes and hangs himself. And when we put the four gospels together, we see that he hung himself on a branch that wasn't strong. And while he was hanging himself and died, the branch broke, he fell down. And it says his body was burst open upon a pile of rocks. The people who he gave the money to took the money, bought that field, buried him there, and just said, let that be, the pot. Let that be Judas's field uh, that, like, because that was bought with blood money. Judas felt bad about doing bad, so he went and killed himself. Peter also felt bad about doing bad. So bad that he didn't think he could be a disciple anymore, didn't think he could be a Christian anymore, didn't think he could follow Jesus anymore. So he went back and started fishing again. But he didn't quit drawing close to Jesus And when Jesus showed up in John 21 on the shore of Galilee and had a walk with him, Peter confessed, when you needed me most, I was there least. I failed, I'm sorry. And Jesus said, that's okay. Would you still follow me? Would you still lead for me? And Peter said, I would love to. 2 Corinthians says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow makes you feel bad, but once you start feeling bad, you live however you live. Godly sorrow makes you feel bad, and it leads you to change what you did so you don't continue to live bad. We see on the same night that Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter betrayed Jesus. One felt bad, but changed nothing. One felt bad and allowed Jesus to change everything. I think it's important to learn that feeling bad about doing bad is not the same thing as repenting of sin. Repenting of sin is changing what we did bad. Warning number six. I think, by the way, this is the hardest one. I don't even like to say this one, but I believe it. God is going to use bad people with bad motives in your life to accomplish his purpose. His purpose is in your soul. I wish this wasn't true. I wish I didn't have to give this point. At the exact same time, I think I have found spiritual comfort in this lesson of Judas in my own life. God will use bad people with bad motives in your life to accomplish his purposes in your soul. So this August, we'll have our week of prayer, the last week of August, heading into Labor Day. And during that week of prayer, every day, we'll look at one of the verses in Psalm 23. So we'll do a week-long prayer journey through Psalm 23. One of the verses that we'll pray through is we'll ask God to lead us in paths of righteousness. It's a really scary prayer to pray. That prayer means this, lead me to become like Jesus. Lead me to become like Jesus. It's a scary prayer to pray. Do you think, yes or no, that God wants us to learn how to forgive others like Jesus forgave us? How do you think that's going to happen? Do you think... God wants you to learn to turn the other cheek? Yes or no? How do you think that's going to happen? So somebody's going to hit me. Yeah. Yeah. Bad people with bad motives. 
train your heart to respond like Jesus. Do you think um, God wants you to learn to have patience in life, yes or no? How do you think that's going to happen? You're going to have to wait way longer for that thing you've been waiting on than you think. Like as we look at the lessons that we learn from the life of Judas, we learn that God is willing to use bad people with bad motives in our life to get our soul in a good place. Aren't we glad he used Judas in Jesus' life in this way for our salvation? Yes. Do we desire this in our discipleship? No way. But some of the things we need to become like Jesus can only happen if bad people with bad motives are around us. God's allowing them to shape our soul. And then finally, warning number seven. We'll close on this one. This has been the one that's probably been the most impactful for me. When I see myself as better than Judas, I've begun making dangerous spiritual comparisons that will only separate me from grace. I think I started this message preparation several weeks ago, planning to blast Judas for who he was, and honestly, thanking God I wasn't him. But I didn't end there. Um, Any of you ever have a friend um, who's gone on a diet and they've lost 20 or 30 pounds and then they want to critique everything they ever see you eat. Anybody, like, anybody ever have a friend like that? They're like just really annoying people. It's like, glad you went on a diet. Really, you needed to, but I'm going to eat this Cheeto and I want you to shut your mouth because that's <laughs> like, you do you. I'm going to eat the Cheeto. Like, we're good. We do that spiritually. We do that spiritually because it makes us feel better. You can have someone who's followed Jesus their entire life They've never read their Bible. And then they read their Bible through in a year, and the next year, they really look down on any Christian who's not reading their Bible through in a year. That's going to happen, by the way, for some of you reading your Bible through this year. There are some people, been followers of Jesus their entire life, they've never been on a global mission trip. They go on a global mission trip, they get back, and all of a sudden, they think less of every person in the church who's never gone on a global mission trip. Even though they've been on one, now... They're better than everyone. You're going to have people who spent their entire Christian life and never served in the community. And then they serve in the community on serve week. And they get connected to a serve project. And they start serving faithfully. And every time they come to church, all they can see is other people who don't serve as much as they do. And it's like, it's crazy how the areas that God intends to grow you are the area where Satan attacks you and says become prideful. Because as soon as you convince that you're better than you're worse off. It's the spirit of Judas. One of the Bible verses that I've known my whole life sounds different to me after this message. I've never thought of it in this, uh, in this way until I put this message together. But in 1 Timothy 1.15, the apostle Paul says this about his story. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I never read that verse thinking about Judas before until this message. And then I thought, why didn't Paul say, I'm a really bad sinner, but at least I'm not Judas. Like all of us would have read that and still would have thought a lot about Paul. When I look at the world and I look at my life, he didn't say, I am the worst of sinners except for Judas. He said, I'm below him. Remember the last thing I told you in the quick bio? 
of Judas? That every time the disciples are mentioned, he's mentioned last. And he's always called a traitor. Paul said, if you would ever expand that list and put my name on it, I'd be under Judas. Because I was a traitor too. You say, yeah, Paul was a bad guy. Like, Paul killed Stephen. Judas killed Jesus. Judas seems to be worse. But Paul said, in grace, the only way I can stay close to Jesus is by not looking at Judas and comparing myself to him, but by looking at Jesus and comparing myself to him. And when I look at Jesus, if there's a list of Christians at Journey, Christian Newsom would be the very last person on that list. And he would very correctly be called someone who's been a traitor to Jesus most of his life. Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. But then he would say, but the grace of God to me was not without effect. Which means I was a sinner. I was a traitor. But God was gracious and it has changed me. I'm not the same guy. I don't talk like the same guy. I don't watch the same things. I don't treat people the same way. I'm at the bottom of the list because I'm a traitor. But Jesus has changed me. And now I live for him. As you process through this message on this man and your faith life, what have you heard? What do you need to do about that? We always close our services with some reflection questions that will allow you to ask some pointed questions about what you heard and apply those to your own life and then pray about them. So we'll close that way with three minutes of questions. At the end of that, I'm going to come back up. I'm going to ask you not to leave um, because we're going to have all of those who are heading to our student camp this year, 432 students and adults getting ready to head to youth camp for a week. Uh, any of the students who are going, any of the adult leaders who are going to be leading at the end of our prayer time in three minutes, we're going to ask them to stand, and as a church, we're going to pray over them. But before we do that, open your heart, listen to what God told you today, and then kind of put that into prayer. God, thank you for what you taught us about the life and ministry of Judas when it comes to our salvation and when it comes to our discipleship. Open our hearts to be honest about where the spirit of Judas lives in us. And like the Apostle Peter, let us have some godly remorse that leads to repentance. Change. Because we should be at the bottom of the list because we've all been traitors. But your grace wasn't without effect. You changed us. And you're still changing us. Do that today, even as we reflect on these questions for three minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.